Hello, once again, welcome back to the Gratuitous Pausing Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Greyhawk. And I'm your co-host, Jackson Eflin. And we are proud to present the return of the Disney Bracket. Yay! I mean, it's not so much of a bracket. It's Frozen 2 came out and we wanted to talk about it. Yeah, it was an excuse to go see Frozen 2. I mean, I don't mind us just dipping into things every now and again. Especially this time of the year, because the holidays are about and schedules Mm -hmm. are jam-packed full of things. It's easier for us to do sort of one-off episodes. Yeah. So while this is happening, you might not hear from us for a hot minute. A hot minute because Frozen. Actually, I think that's a good place to start. Let's talk about Frozen 1 and our thoughts on that. Before we get into this, I would highly recommend people go listen to episode 16 of our Disney Bracket where we talked about Frozen Untangled. Link in the description. We're not going to be here too long. We just want to hit a few points because we rewatched it after a year. We're older and wiser now. I don't think our opinions have changed drastically on the first Frozen. I think we have some more interesting things to talk about with it, including some ways that we think the movie could be fixed. Mm-hmm. Not fixed as in it doesn't work at all, but we think there are parts that are not as strong as they could be. Exactly. Frozen 1 is fine. It's a solid film, but there's a lot of highs and we kind of wish that the rest of the film was closer to them as opposed to them being like these standout moments and the rest of the film being a little forgettable. Mm-hmm. A lot of parts of Frozen to mm-hmm. work on an emotional level, but on a structural level. Eh. Yeah. However, I also know that Frozen was very impactful for a lot of people, both for the queer subtext, also the themes of sisterhood, and also just being a pretty movie with a lot of good music. And so if you really enjoyed it and don't agree with us, that's fine. I'm not, I don't want to like criticize your childhood. You're, you're... We don't want to yuck your yum. That's true. That <laughs> phrase is what we want to use here. <laughs> I mean, do you not want to use that phrase? Oh no, it's a fine phrase. I just, it's a very useful phrase. It's also just very weird sounding. Yes. Anyway... Speaking of weird sounding, Frozen, great music. Yeah, I think the first Frozen film was Disney really leaning into like the Broadway style musical. The Disney animated features have always been musical. There's no arguing that, but I think there's a big distinction with the way Frozen uses its music as opposed to other films. Yeah. Like the musical numbers feel more removed from the rest of the film. There's a lot more of them, it feels like. There's a good video, link in the description, that traces the media construction lineage, for lack of better terminology, between the producers and Frozen. And it's like a really good summation of this. Mm-hmm. But also because a lot of the musical numbers are doing a lot of the heavy lifting, sometimes the in-between bits don't always work. Mm-hmm. And I think we realized would have helped out a lot. During the climb up the mountain, Anna is very optimistic and naive and sure that she can just fix things because she doesn't have the memories of being hurt by Elsa's magic in the past. And we realized that if her trek up the mountain had also been a trek backwards through memory and her all of her memories coming back, it might have led to her arriving at Elsa's ice castle more aware of what was going on and having a more mature outlook so they're on an equal footing and how that might have been more interesting for her as a character. Another thing this would have also done is gave Olaf a narrative purpose because for most of the film he's kind of just there as a wacky sidekick and he doesn't provide a whole lot to the narrative or even the emotional growth of Anna or Kristoff and by using Olaf to kind of uh, kickstart Anna's memories coming back and specifically because Olaf was there the night that 
everything happened with Anna getting hurt and the trolls and everything like that, having Olaf kind of be the focal point for Anna's restoring of memories would be really solid. And it would also make sense for Olaf to be there during the confrontation with Elsa and Anna, Mm -hmm. if that were the case. We also know that Kristoff was there when the trolls took away Anna's memories and that never gets brought up. So this might have been a good way to make that work. Mm -hmm. And I mean... I think water as a carrier for memory might be an interesting concept for these movies to explore. Just throwing it out there. Um, (laughs) There's also some problems with Anna as a character in the first film. She kind of feels like three quarters baked. Like she needed just a thing, a hobby or something. Yeah, like she doesn't have the sort of defining features that a Disney princess typically has. And so we kind of threw it around a bit and we settled on the idea of what if Anna was just super into like trivia? Not useful trivia, but just... You know, the the average swallow lays 247,000 eggs in its lifetime or whatever. Yeah, because she was alone as, for most of her time as a child. It would make sense that she'd probably pick up an o- hobby to occupy her time, but we don't really see that in the How to Build a Snowman sequence. It's mostly like her hanging out, talking to paintings, but that never really comes up again. Mm-hmm. Being a trivia sponge would also play into the ideas of memory that we were talking about earlier. So mm-hmm. it, again, cohesive character building. Although speaking of the paintings in the first film, I really like the way they've melded the Disney style with all these uh, classic art periods. Mm -hmm. It's a good synthesis of the two. Yeah. Also, because I'm friends with Sarah Hollowell, who is into weird things that happen on mountains, I got really excited about the paradoxical undressing that was happening when Elsa's taking off her clothes as she's getting colder and colder up the mountain. Mm. I think like the other big thing is... Hans doesn't quite work with the the twist and everything. It's almost there. I think they needed to do a better job seeding it. Or another thing that we talked about was him being less gleeful about betraying Anna when he does. If it was more so him having to admit that he doesn't really love Anna and he was just kind of faking this to be able to inherit a castle uh, because he's 13th in line and is you know, in his home country, that could have been a little bit more interesting for him. Made him a little more tragic. Yeah. And I mean, it is definitely true that liars and abusers flip like a switch and be like that. And I don't want to deny or downplay that experience that people have had to deal with. But I think that it doesn't work in this particular film. Well, it's because the film doesn't do a good job of talking about abuse and explaining it. Like we have Hans, but there's also the abuse that... Anna and Elsa's parents put them through and the emotionally abusive nature of the trolls towards Kristoff. I mean, look at the first two stanzas of Fixer Upper. It's hashtag not great. Yeah, and the film doesn't really engage with it all. It's just kind of there. It is shocking to me that of Frozen, Frozen 2, and Once Upon a Time Season 4, Once Upon a Time Season 4 does the most to unpack how shitty Anna and Elsa's parents are. Yeah, I think those are like my major points from the first Frozen. I have a few more things like, how do you heat this castle? And why don't people in Disney movies ever question their religion as much as they really ought to? Yeah, that's another weird thing. Like the religiosity from the first Frozen film. But I don't want to spend all day on Frozen. Yeah, I, like, I want to spend all day on Frozen too. Yeah, they're minor quibbles. And I kind of just wanted to refresh people's memories about where we're coming from and some of the issues we have with the first ones. So they have context for us going to Frozen 2. And how this part's going to play out, we're going to give some brief spoiler-free thoughts, then we're going to give a quick summary for those who aren't that interested in seeing it, and then we'll get into the big spoiler section. So, yeah. Big spoiler is on, like, 
it's going to be big and there will be spoilers. Not that there's like a big twist or anything. Mm-hmm. Or is there? Maybe there is. Maybe there's not. Maybe there's two twists. Campaigning of misinformation. <laughs> anyway, general thoughts. I liked it a lot. Go see it. Yeah, I think Frozen 2 is overall much stronger than the first film. I don't think anything in Frozen 2 hits the high of what Let It Go is, this cultural moment, but it's overall a much stronger film. It has some holes here and there, too. There's some stuff I think could have been stronger, all that jazz, but it definitely works as a film. It is a very worthy successor. It's probably the best Disney sequel. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so far, who knows what else we're going to get in the world, but you know. Mm-hmm. The characters are strong. It's very beautiful to look at. Uh, I think this is definitely one worth seeing in theaters for just the visual spectacle alone. Although, yeah. it also will work out of theaters. Honestly, the thing I le- liked the least about the theater experience, apart from the crying babies, uh, was it wasn't loud enough. There were some parts that are that are like big hit-you-in-the-face song moments that didn't have the volume cranked as high as they could have. The events you're about to see are entirely fictitious. However, they should nevertheless be played at maximum volume. Another thing I noticed... This film seems genetically engineered to be a Thanksgiving movie. Oh, yeah. Themes of family. All of the fall colors mixed in with a little bit of, like, the wintry notes from the first film. There's even, like, this huge communal feast at the beginning of the film. Mm -hmm. And communities are very important in the film overall. And also repairing damaged relationships between communities. Right. So this is a very Thanksgiving-y film. And I think that it's probably going to be a staple on television or in homes in the coming years. Mm -hmm. Nothing about it made me go, oh, this is a trigger warning we need to give people in particular, if that's Uh, the thing you're worried about. There's some racism and colonization stuff. That's true. Okay, yeah. That the film gets into. I think overall the film does a reasonable job of unpacking it, but I can also understand people just not wanting to engage with it, especially over Thanksgiving. (laughs) Right. When you might have to like talk to your relatives about this. Yeah. Yeah. Or also just, you know, the, the cultural baggage associated with Thanksgiving and the white colonists screwing over the native populations. Yeah. So there's that. But... If you really hate queer baiting, maybe avoid it. <laughs> I mean, it's not queer baiting. Look, we. No, it's, Sh- it's Schrodinger's queer baiting, right? Sh- now. Yeah, it's currently Schrodinger's queer baiting. So that's a bit of a spoiler. Elsa does not get a girlfriend. However, at no point does she look at the camera and say, I am not a queer. <laughs> so, you know. Why don't we go ahead and put our spoiler break here and then we can get into your summary. Sure. Um, so pause this video, go out and see Frozen 2. And then immediately go to the next theater and see Charlie's Angels. Because, oh my god, it's so good. It's so much fun. It is a gleeful delight. It is like uh, if you gave Spice World a budget. (laughs) Anyway, so now that you're back, you probably just saw this happen. I'm going to summarize it anyway. Or for those of you who couldn't bother to go to the theaters, for Mm -hmm. whatever reason. Mm -hmm. Don't blame you. Yeah. Or for those of you with no interest in pirates. Once upon a time, there was peace between the North Aldrins and their neighbors to the south in Arendelle. But at a festival to celebrate a dam that they built together, there was a conflict. Anna and Elsa's grandfather died, and the forest was shrouded in a mist that would let no one in nor out. Then Frozen 1 happened, and now everything in Arendelle is great. Except a mysterious voice in the wind is calling out to Elsa. She responds, and the elements just wreck Arendelle. Everybody flees the city. They keep talking about it like it's a country. It is just one city that they're fleeing. There are no farms, I guess. It's like a city-state. Yeah, which is fair enough, yeah. It's like Agrabah. Anyway... 
Elsa, Anna, Kristoff, Sven, and Olaf go north to figure out what's going on and enter the enchanted forest. When Elsa puts her hand on it and the mists part. There, they find the war isn't quite over, with the Northuldrans and the Arendellans, people from Arendelle, still in a bit of a conflict. But they managed to bring a fragile peace when they realize that uh, Anna and Elsa's mom was actually a Northuldran the whole time. The Northuldran elder tells Elsa how to get to the River of Memories, a place their mom talked about where all memories are kept. And she tries to go off alone, but Anna comes with her. On the journey, they find their parents' crashed ship and discover that their parents were actually uh, headed north, not south, looking for info on Elsa's powers. Blaming herself, Elsa pushes Anna away to go north alone. In the River of Memories, she finds the strong fifth element, horse girls. Okay, no, it's like her memories or whatever. Turns out her grandpa was really afraid of the magic that the North Aldrins were trafficking in and betrayed their leader, killing him. Elsa freezes to death, but sends a message to Anna to explain the whole plot. Anna realizes they have to destroy the dam and Arendelle with it. Olaf dies. Anna tricks some stone giants into smashing the dam, and the spirits decide that Arendelle gets a second chance, and they help Elsa save the city. She goes to live with the North Aldrins, Anna becoming queen, so that they can become a bridge for the two peoples. Kristoff, who's been trying to propose the whole time, does so. And Olaf isn't dead anymore, because water has memories. That's a big theme. Drink every time that water or memory is spoken of. Yeah, where do we want to start with this? Let's actually start with production stuff. For the most part, the major players in the production team haven't changed. It's still Chris Buck and Jennifer Lee, still produced by Peter DeVacco. Screenplay still by Jennifer Lee. Music is still by Robert Lopez and Christopher Anderson Lopez. But the major shakeup is not only has have Kristen Anderson Lopez and Robert Lopez from the music team been added to the story team as well, which I think does a much better job of integrating all of the musical numbers and they don't feel so, this is a musical number, this is the connective tissue to get to the next musical number like the first one did. Uh, but they've also added in Mark E. Smith, who has been a Disney animator for a very long time, since the mid-90s. But he's also been involved as a story artist on Tangled and lead story artist on Big Hero 6. And he was also the story lead for Zootopia. All of which have much more cohesive narratives than the first Frozen film does. And honestly, the two of those are some of my favorite Disney films. And I think that is one of the reasons that Frozen 2 is much more cohesive and a stronger film overall than the first film was. Was the integration of the music into the story and someone who had a little bit more experience with less musically driven Disney films being in to bulk up that connective tissue. Um, there's a great bit of music and story being interwoven at the start of Into the Unknown, which is Elsa's... I Want More song. Yeah, her I Want More song. This is sort of Elsa's How Far I'll Go. Go follow this voice coming across the wind thing. This uh, sultry siren. The sultry, this sultry siren. I don't, does she actually say sultry? I don't think so, but she definitely calls the voice a siren. She does. It is definitely, the, si the word siren is used. And while the song is starting, and also kind of wanting to go off on her own again, you hear the opening motif of Let It Go playing. And if we accept that Let It Go is kind of the song of Elsa isolating herself, but also indulging in her powers, it's kind of like... Let it go inside of her trying to like get out, which I think is a really good way to describe Elsa's emotional landscape. Mm -hmm. Another good example is actually like the very beginning of the film. So we're back with Elsa and Anna and kids. They're, you know, doing a storytelling game as kids that age do all the time. Parents come in and they reveal the story of when their father went to a real enchanted forest. 
you know, he tells the story and kind of gives the background on the situation that will play a large role in the rest of the film. And then their mom sings them a song to help them go to sleep afterwards. The, just the transition from all of that background information into this song that is diegetic and gets reused throughout the film is so good. Mm-hmm. And you talked about how that song, uh, All Is Found, is a bit more folksy and how we were both a big fan of that because that's kind of our type of music. So, yeah. Yeah. It, it hits all of my like buttons for that sort of thing. It's really good. I honestly think it's the best song in the film. And it's odd because like that folksy stuff is kind of outside of Disney's wheelhouse, especially lately. Mm-hmm. But it the, worth- the wheelhouse of mouse? <laughs> sure. <laughs> but it works here just because of a, how well it's done, but also that song we later realize is connected with the North Aldrin people, which is why it has that more folksy style. And it tracks the Frozen series is kind of somewhat immersed in the waters of Norse folk stuff. Mm-hmm. So it, it tracks that you have this like folk song in here. And the music's definitely changed this time around like i said before like nothing hits the same highs that let it go did but i think yeah like what like a high c <laughs> <Shut up. laughs> but a lot of the songs here are more experimental music is still a huge component of the film the film still has a large number of musical no- significant musical numbers I think they are integrated better here, but they also go th- further afield for inspiration. Perfect example of this is Kristoff gets a <laughs> gets a song that is a 1980s power ballad, full with like cheesy 1980s music video and like spotlights and like fade in and fade out of it, like his face. It's it is so ridiculously cheesy and so good and on the soundtrack it's covered by weezer and it feels it sounds like it just came off of their teal album <laughs> the song isn't particularly like complicated and there's not really much happening in the story with it it's just these are my thoughts right now so i'm so they kind of had to do something to fill the space it wasn't just him like talking to sven for three minutes and it worked it's a very funny song it's a very delightful sequence the reindeer as backup singers are very good it yeah. was that was great that's exactly what i wanted and it kind of cuts the tension a bit because you have this kind of very grim serious tone for a bit and we get to relax for a little while yeah uh, although there's not really another tension cut point to like the plot finishes up right sorry i think about how fucking dark this movie gets yeah we'll get into that yeah also i kind of like olaf's song in this or at least Olaf's themes in this. Maybe not his song per se, but Olaf I, bothered me less because they realized that Olaf is a, is a literal child and so he should be treated like one. And so his arc of this movie is realizing that he, a lot he doesn't know, doesn't understand, and that the world can be scary, but he's trying to have a positive outlook that he will like understand it when he's older, mm-hmm. which is fun. I, that worked. Olaf had good jokes. I didn't hate him. I didn't yearn for his death. He also is integrated much more heavily into the plot because he goes along with Anna and Elsa. And then when Elsa has to go off on her own to uh, get to the like river of memories, Olaf stays with Anna and is... When that all happens, it's because Elsa pushes both of them away. And Olaf talks about how he's really angry and 
Anna and Olaf have this really good conversation about the way that they're feeling and how to deal with those really big emotions that Olaf especially isn't used to. And it very much feels like a mentor talking to a child. Because mm-hmm. Olaf is feeling real anger for the first time in his life, question mark? Question mark about the about life, not about feeling anger. And he's not ready for it because he's a he's a very happy spirit. He was built to be this like spirit of childhood innocence and snow and fun, which anger doesn't really like. It's almost the polar <laughs> opposite of that. Mm-hmm. So it works really well that he doesn't know how to process his anger yet. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Olaf gets an- another song here. It's better than uh, Snowman in Summer from the first one, but I I still didn't particularly enjoy it. And while Olaf is at many points better, Olaf is also one of the main characters who is injecting like meta humor in, into the plot. There's a bit during the opening crowd song where he literally turns to the camera and says, some of you look older, which yeah. I like that actually. That was funny to me. That made me groan. I'm like, oh, I, I was preparing for the worst after that. I'm like, oh God, I don't think they learned their lessons with Olaf. And he's definitely better, but there are still some things about him like, uh, and in general, I think Disney is definitely being a little bit more subtle with their metal humor here than they were in something like Moana. No one makes a Twitter joke. <laughs> Thankfully. Some characters take a selfie. <laughs> but it's, you know, like a posed derogotype, so it's not it's not as bad. Daguerreotype. Yeah, that's what I said. You said derogotype. Yeah. I'm, I'm being derogatory about those characters. I'm not. They're fine. Yeah, they're fine. Yeah. We also get Show Yourself, which is kind of... It's like they split the energy of Let It Go into both Into the Unknown and also Show Yourself. And Show Yourself is sort of the song about Elsa getting closer and closer to this voice that's calling out to her and realizing that um, the call was not there at all, it's inside her. It's like the tide always falling and rising. Since you mentioned the two songs that I was going to talk about, let's go ahead and talk about the queer baiting of Elsa. Yeah, it ain't great, but I mean... In what context do you feel it's not great? Because I think I think it is great in the fact that there's a lot of it. <laughs> oh, sure. I mean, it ain't great if they didn't like just go for it. Mm-hmm. Disney has enough money to buy literally a galaxy far, far away. You can have a gay princess and be fine. Or buy, as the lighting is very clearly signaling to us. Yeah. But so we have Into the Unknown, which you know sets the plot in motion. It's Elsa connecting with the elemental spirits of the Enchanted Forest. And it's also performed by Panic at the Disco on the soundtrack. So you know it has a very powerful gay energy. Mm-hmm. You know, then we have Show Yourself, which is at the very apex of Elsa's arc. This is right when she is about to bust the plot wide open. And you can tell that she's changed emotionally because she has an outfit upgrade? She has an outfit upgrade. Her hair is completely out of the braid now. It's just all loose. She has let it go. And the sequence also contains... Lots and lots of Yannick imagery. A shocking amount of Yannick imagery, to be honest. Like, Georgia O'Keeffe would blush at this. <laughs> also, if you get that joke, you're an awesome person. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And on the one hand, while I would love a queer Disney princess, I also am very much here for being your own chosen one, deciding that you that your power was you all along. That's that's a good lesson for kids. But we could also just had her like just making out with a nice lady or something. Yeah. And I mean, there is a character that we get to ship with Elsa in this one. They introduce Honey Marin, who is a uh, young North Aldrin woman. And they have like one and a half scenes together. The major one is that they talk during Elsa's first night in the forest and they pet a baby reindeer together. 
They have so much chemistry that even Honey Lemon wouldn't be able to process it. <laughs> it's weird for animated characters, but... Yeah. One other weird thing about the queer baiting going on. So, show yourself... Like we talked about, it's a very thirsty song. <laughs> but it's also a duet with Elsa's mom. Yeah, it's a little odd there. Yeah, like... What do you call it when there's an Oedipus complex going on, but she's a lesbian? <laughs> going to the Electora Old College? No. <laughs> That was terrible. I'm sorry. Uh, speaking of euphemisms, I would be very surprised if, like, riding the wet horse did not become a euphemism. Ooh. Yeah, she does get a magic horse. It's the, like, elemental spirit of water that, like, is helping guide her around. But it is a horse made out of water. Yes. There's probably some deep dives that I could go on about the horse, which is pale, like, the, the rider of the pale horse's death. A euphemism for the orgasm is the little death. I, I get what you're saying. I think that's too many different different reference points all collide. Yeah, into like I said, I could go on a deep dive. I'm not going to do it here because we only have so much time. Right. And there's an element of like death and rebirth stuff going on, like hero's journey type things. Yeah. Olaf makes that explicit and like going into the underworld of memory and all that stuff. It's something, something, Joseph Campbell, whatever. We're going to put a pin in that. Okay. While we're on the queer baiting stuff, there's actually another character that they kind of do a little bit with. So there's some weird stuff going on with Kristoff and a new character, Ryder, who is also Northundran, and he is also super into reindeer. Their big scene together is Kristoff and Ryder like, go out into the woods and get this big proposal ready for Kristoff to, to propose to Anna, but she heads off with Elsa before any of that happens. And I'm not quite sure whether the film is pushing this as a friendship thing or a bi-curious thing. I don't know. And I'm not sure the film does either. I don't think the film meant it to be anything. I think it's just that we're so desperate for any kind of representation in Disney that we're jumping at anything. I mean, I know I am. But also, they also had chemistry, weirdly, because they're the same character. Yeah. They're also both apparently lightly telepathic and able to talk to reindeers. It is strongly implied that they can both hear what reindeer are thinking. Yeah, and then they just say it out loud. I now have additional questions. Yeah, like I said, there's some weird stuff going on with them. I think part of the reason that we can't really jump to any conclusions on any of this is because the film introduces some new characters, but for the most part, they are all very, very secondary. They're out of the plot for a vast majority of the film. Probably the most significant character we have here is... Lieutenant Mattias, mm-hmm. who is the newest in a long line of Disney's decision to have the one black man in the plot be the royal guard figure, which we see in this Maleficent 2, the most recent Cinderella adaption. It's weird. Disney, what are you doing? I mean, heck yeah, more black characters and things, especially things set in like Northern Europe. But what's up with this weird trope where they're always like the loyal guard guy? Although I do think that they avert a lot of the tropes that are associated with the royal guard. He, like He's not super antagonistic. As soon as the North Aldrins and the stranded Arendellans realize what's going on, and this is the new queen of Arendelle, and also their mom is North Aldrin, uh, they kind of like, okay, yeah, we need to work together to fix all of this. Mm-hmm. And he also comes back at the climax to help Anna take out the dam. 
Yeah. He's not a bad character by any means. Yeah. And he, you're right, he is the most like noticeable of the new ones. I couldn't even remember Ryder's name. It's weird that Flynn Ryder and Ryder both exist in the same universe, but okay. Yeah. Well, he, he's not Flynn Ryder anymore. He's Eugene Fitzherbert. That's true. But it is also worth noting that they introduce Mattias, and he gets his own like small love story arc. Mm-hmm. It's very small and cute, but I like it. Yeah, it is a charming little story. I'm glad they got to have that. Mm-hmm. I just kind of wish that we got a little bit more time to spend with the rest of new secondary characters. Yeah, because we get Honey Marin, uh, Ryder, and then a... I, I know they gave her name. I can't remember what it is. Uh, the elder of the North Oldman folk. Uh, Yolana. Yolana, yeah. It really feels like at some point there was that, but it was all with Kristoff because he's the one who stayed behind with them. But... Kristoff's scenes weren't necessary for the rest of the plot, so I'm pretty sure that they wound up on the cutting room floor. I can see that. And to be fair, I'm glad. I'm glad that Kristoff kind of gets out of the way and it's really focused on Elsa and Anna and their familial bonds. Mm -hmm. And that Kristoff shows up to be the transport when you need him, which, fair, totally. Mm -hmm. Good use for your boyfriend. Mm -hmm. So now's a good enough time to get into some of the interesting stuff with colonialism. Sure, why not, TM? Sure. Also, gonna preface this, we are not experts. As far as I know, neither of us have any particular uh, Sami ancestry, so if you mess this up, my bad. Yeah. So, for those who don't know, uh, the Sami are... They are native inhabitants of the far reaches of, like, the Arctic Circle area of Scandinavia. Yeah. And there's been a long history of them being subject to colonialism by, like, their southern neighbors. So, this definitely patterns onto that. Weirdly enough, the fear of magic is part of that for a long time. The Sami were thought of as witches, and so there's a lot of Sami being executed and their religion being stamped out during the height of the witch-burning period in Europe. So that's fun. So there are now a lot less Sami artifacts and religious traditions around than there should be, and it sucks a lot. And a lot of the vocalizations you hear in the film are reminiscent of Sami yoking, which, which are generally not meant to be like words, but sounds. Some of the missionaries who reported on the Sami way back when there was like earlier contact described them as believing that the living and the dead are two halves of the same family, which I think works because you have this bridge between the mundane and the spiritual world. That's all really fun. While I don't know how much research they did, I'm glad that the, those themes are in there. I will say that this uses like the four elements model that's like air, earth, fire, water, as opposed to anything that tracks all that well onto any like Norse or Sami beliefs, which... I get it. They're adapting it for a like Western American audience, not that jazz. It, the, the four element with the occasional fifth is kind of the standard model, right? Along with that, the elements had a spiritual component and weren't just like people with fire powers, people with water powers, whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the film actually does a lot of tackling of colonialism, xenophobia, like our hidden shameful history of just dicking over indigenous people over and over, and, and how, then whitewashing it and whitewashing it. And how the current ecological crisis can't really be fixed until we listen to the indigenous people who have more knowledge about it. Which, you know, is very true. There are some really complex themes that this film touches on. There's even an entire song about Anna reflecting on her hopelessness after Elsa has been frozen solid, although she doesn't, like, know everything. She just knows that her magic is gone, and that's why Olaf is dying. You leaned over to me and said, uh, Start? I don't feel so good. Because he was turning into snow flurries. <laughs> so, fuck you. <laughs> I mean, I knew he was, you know, gonna come back. I knew they didn't have the balls to kill the snowman, but... 
Do you want to kill the snowman? But all this talk about elemental models and these darker themes, I want to talk about probably the biggest takeaway from this film and really theatrical Disney sequels in general. This film series has grown with its audience. Yeah. There's six years of difference between this and Frozen 1. I hope all of you listeners now feel old. And if you think about it, Frozen 1 is targeting like that six to eight year old demographic. Six years later, they're 12 to 14. And yeah, a lot of these things are going to be on their minds with our, our current culture of the impending climate crisis that is upon us. More and more realization that history has been whitewashed for a very long time and a lot of minority voices have not been part of that. And we have lost a lot of history or misinterpreted a lot of history because of it. A lot of that generation is going through anxiety and depression, just like Anna does. She's actually really anxious throughout lots of the film, which makes sense given the events of her parents' death six years ago in film time and three years ago, everything that happened with Elsa. And Anna's song, at the low point of the film, is talking about how when you don't know what to do and you don't have a plan, just do the next right thing, which is a really good message. Not a very strong song, but I think the message overall is really good mm -hmm. and important, and that was working for me because that is a really good ethos. Yeah. Yeah, this film also has like a marketed increase in sexually charged imagery and dialogue. Like, Jax and I were talking, this is definitely the horniest Disney movie in a long time. Like, it's up there with Hunchback of Notre Dame. There isn't that, that one line. I know what you're imagining. And like, no one sings a song about how they're just so horny that they're going to hell for it. But there's a bit where Kristoff gets all dressed up in like Arendelle-ish finery. And honestly, like, I prefer to in leather, which, wow. Yeah. All of this points to this film series is growing with its audience, much like the way uh, Avatar The Last Airbender grew with its audience going into Legend of Korra, and they tackled more adult complex themes, and it was in general a little darker. Mm -hmm. And that's not to say that this film is not appropriate for that same six to eight demographic. It's just a little bit more complicated, a little bit more nuanced, and they might need a little bit more help processing everything. There was definitely a lot of upset children during Olaf's death scene. <laughs> Although they don't quite show it on screen, it's more you see the body, which means the pile of snow. Again, cowards. Yeah. I want that snow drink obliterated. <laughs> I don't want to go too far off the point. While the themes of colonialism and racism and xenophobia are in there, I don't know if they're all going to hold up super well. I don't know how they're all going to stack up against history. We were fresh out of it. We saw it like two hours ago. So I haven't like done like deep dives and uh, analyses. While I think it is broadly hitting some good points, I'm sure that people are going to unpack how, what does and doesn't work about it. Oh, yeah. So please look for those articles in you know the next two to three weeks. And I think... I am at least willing to give this film credit because it does a better job unpacking the colonialism and xenophobia and environmental themes better here than it did at unpacking abuse in the first film. Mm -hmm. And it's doing a better job than Zootopia did, I think, at unpacking yes. a complex social theme. Zootopia's problem was it was very muddy between gender discrimination and racial discrimination, mm -hmm. and it led to some very awkward moments. I will say it does that thing where there's kind of just like the one bad guy who's afraid and then you get rid of him and then the racism is over. But it does have the like, you have to get rid of his lingering effects as well as him. So mm -hmm. good job. 
And like, there's also the a little bit of weirdness because Elsa and Anna are ethnically North Aldrin, not culturally. Although by the end of the film, Elsa is kind of learning to embrace that part of herself. Mm-hmm. Speaking of Anna and Elsa, though, I really love the strength of their sisterly bond. It's really good. Mm-hmm. Like, there's a, a line that's in the trailer. Like Elsa says, like, you can't just follow me into fire. And Anna replies, then don't run into fire. I like that. Anna utterly refuses to not try to help take care of her sister. I love that their bond is so strong. Like, that's so good and important. Mm -hmm. And it's also, Anna finally has that connection with her sister back after long, long years of separation. She's not willing to give it up. Yeah. In in fact, she's incredibly anxious about it, and that is affecting her other relationships, like with Kristoff. Mm -hmm. I will say the sequel where man has trouble proposing thing is a bit hackneyed. It's not bad per se, but I've seen it before. And this is not necessarily like a better version of that. It's just fine. I don't have a lot of problems with it because it's a very minor part of the story. Like we get maybe three or four scenes worth of content for it. There's a few at the beginning and then one at the very end. Yeah. But also like things seem to go wrong whenever Kristoff proposes, which makes me think the ring is cursed. <laughs> I'm really excited for uh, Dizzy the Nibelungenlied. I think that's all the major thoughts I have. Yeah, in general, really solid film. I think it's a step up from the first one. Honestly, putting this and Tangled together, like Frozen 1 and Tangled was already pretty close. Most of what had Tangled pull ahead is because it actually had a color palette and you could see things. Right. Which, hey, we haven't really talked about that. Frozen 2 looks better than Frozen 1, generally. Yeah, in a variety. The color palette is much wider. There's these gorgeous autumnal colors in the trees. We have these like great fjords with like moss and lichen growing on them we still have the icy musical numbers with elsa there's these scenes with this like magical pink fire Mm -hmm. it's so good they also just look higher fidelity i also think that they have adjusted elsa and anna's models a little bit to remove some of the same face syndrome that was going on before them it is still subtle. I'm not sure if most people are going to notice it, but it's also complicated because they are siblings, so they're going to look alike. Right. They even kind of nod to it when a lot of the memories of this movie manifest as ice statues, and they find one of their father as a kid, and they're like, look, we have his face. Mm-hmm. But yeah, really solid film. I recommend going to see it, especially if you're going to like bring your kids along. They'll probably enjoy it. There's a lot more action sequences in this one so i think there's going to be a little bit more for everybody sure i can see that definitely like go with your siblings especially if you have like a sister Mm -hmm. maybe don't go with your parents too much i mean don't not go with your parents but this is more of a sibling movie than a than a parent child movie yeah although if you have lost your parents there's a a few scenes that might be a little tear jerky for you Mm -hmm. if you've lost your stolen The Disney bracket has returned, and it will probably go back into the vault until there's another thing out that we want to talk about. Mm-hmm. So look out for our episode on live-action Lady and the Tramp that no one is talking about. I don't think I want to talk about that either. I don't think I want to see that either. Maybe when that live-action Sword of the Stone thing drops on Disney+. Plus. Oh, that could be on Disney+. Plus. Yeah. Isn't that like from one of the writers of Game of Thrones? Uh, I can't remember. Maybe. Sure. That sounds fun. I'll, I'm here for that. That might be a thing. We'll see. Mm-hmm. As far as the rest of the year, don't have a whole lot 
planned. I know that we talked about doing an episode on that Netflix movie, Klaus, because mm-hmm. it looks gorgeously animated and Christmas. I just refuse to watch it until after Thanksgiving. So Right, so we've got a few days. Uh, this is coming out days before Thanksgiving. <laughs> Thanks for joining us for Frozen, Frozen 2, and Interstitial Bits, where we talk about their movies. Also, a major announcement, if you haven't seen this on our social media before, we are now on iTunes, Google Play Music, Stitcher, and TuneIn. So you can pretty much find us wherever you get your podcasts. If you're standing on your balcony at night and you hear a voice in the wind, that's us calling out to you to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and everywhere podcasts are found for more updates. Once again, this has been the Gratuitous Pausing Podcast. Thanks for tuning in.